I'm Tom Perferman, and this is Series 1 of the TEP Investments Podcast. Welcome to TEP Investments. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by exploring the personalities and the stories behind world-class investors. We investigate the behaviours, habits, insights, skills, and psychology of high-performing individuals, both within and outside of the investing world. My guest on this episode is Maria Rotolu. Maria is an incredibly inspirational person who has a wonderful story, continues to be written. Maria is a former management consultant turned venture builder who helps startups like Uber and Branch.co scale in sub-Saharan Africa. We will hear more about that today and the lessons she has picked up during those fantastic experiences growing world-class businesses. Maria is also the current managing director of the Oxford Seed Fund, a student-led venture capital body that invests in Oxford-affiliated startups every year. Maria leads a team of 11, and throughout the academic year, during the MBA, they scout and find and invest into startups up to £50,000. Maria, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. The pleasure is mine, Tom. It's great to be here. So Maria, we've got an exciting set of topics to cover off on today, but before we get into those, I'd love to start by hearing all about your background. So from my understanding, your story starts in the energetic suburbs of Lagos, Nigeria. So tell us a bit about your family, your early childhood, and the formative experiences that helped shape your attitudes, ambition, and your pathway through life. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and that's Correct. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, um, and I'm the first of five children. Um, And I think my early childhood is shaped um, a lot by my dad and my mom. I remember from my childhood a few like pivotal moments. I think first was when we had our first computer in the house. And for those who had the desktops of Windows 95 and 96, it was this bulky white monitor with like the keyboard and the CPU. And then for places like Nigeria that didn't have constant power, we had to get a UPS to boot. And I remember the first um, experience I had with a computer, I was mesmerized. I, I just didn't, I had so many questions. And I think my dad really encouraged that. Um, I would set up the computer myself. I would work with my dad, who is an accountant and at the time was an accountant as well. Um, So I would do little things like typing in um, entries on Excel for him, doing like high level analysis of of like accounts. And I I remember playing games on the computer, like like I remember playing Half-Life. I remember playing like commandos it was a popular game at that time I remember playing monster truck and all of this kind of shaped my experiences because I I I really um I really was just marveled by the fact that this you know device existed and and it could do things I I I told it to do um throughout that time it kind of evolved into um university and deciding what I wanted to study and of course 
Maria's great with the computer. So um, the logical, you know, decision was computer science. I mean, <laughs> way to go. It was, it was, it was, it made sense. And, and I did that. I, I went into university and studied computer science and that journey continued. It was exciting. And I think while my, whilst my earlier years were, were more on the hardware element, um, the later years then started transitioning into software because when I did computer science as an undergrad, that was what we mostly did. And that was also exciting. I think my, my what I say, a layer to computer science went from just like this physical device that could, that could do you know, anything I wanted it to, to kind of like programming and talking to, 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 to a computer through software. I found out so, that's so fascinating. Um, doing like a website, like linking it with the database, like, and then putting in entries and it would work. I found it so fascinating. And this was around 2016, 2000, and, I'm sorry, 2006 to 2010. Wow, I feel old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that journey happened. And, but, but throughout that journey, if you remember, I, me- I, I mentioned that my dad was a chartered accountant. I was also equally fascinated with the world of, of business and the world of finance and the world of numbers. Um, and I really wanted to understand accounting and finance. So in that journey, um, sometime, um, I, I remember actually reading te- textbooks on accounting, even though I wasn't doing accounting in school at the time. Really? And just wanting to understand it. And, and I remember after graduating from, from university um, and I was deciding what I wanted to do, if I wanted to still be in computer science and be a software engineer, or like pivot into maybe consulting. I just picked up studying for for the accounting exams on my own. And and that my post grad journey then evolved into me going into consulting at Deloitte, where I did mostly financial services, you know, consulting. And then after Deloitte transitioning to Uber because I wanted to do something a bit more hands-on, something more entrepreneurial. I'm restless by nature. I'm a doer by nature, so I really wanted to do something as opposed to just like um, analyzing and handing out decks. I really wanted to be involved in execution, and that was what Uber was for me. I joined Uber as an operations manager and left as the country manager. My role started, um, kicked off with you know analytics, driver engagement, and then pivoted into like regulatory strategy, partnerships design, and and I remember sometime in 2017, I think um branch reached out to me and we're like we're looking for someone to build our our, our sub-saharan um sorry our west africa business um and we would love to have you would love to to to, to have you build that out and, and i was elated by that prospect because i think because of two things i think one i had been in banking um through my work at deloitte I, i'd consulted for banks and and in nigeria especially i i really believe that the financial services landscape was ripe for disruption, kind of like how Uber did for transport. So that's mm-hmm. that branch in my head. It's like, this is the startup that rethinks banking mobile first. And that's what branch, you know, is doing in, in Africa and beyond. And that was exciting. So I joined branch. I spent about three years plus there and built out the team, scaled the business. It was a, a fantastic experience. I remember joining when we had disbursed just about $50,000. And by the time I had left, we had disbursed about $100 million. We had over 2 million customers. The team had grown to about 40. The team had been managed across like 
you know, legal compliance, um, marketing, finance, people ops, operations. So just really using the breadth of my skills there was was super exciting. And and I think to kind of like culminate the 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 accounting story that I kind of started with throughout this journey, I still wanted to understand the numbers. So I, I self-studied to be a chartered accountant here in the UK and 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 pretty much got my ACCA certification. I think that was interesting for me because I really um, wanted to know the numbers of the business as well as the tech, as well as the operations. I just wanted to know how a business worked um, from the inside out. And I think um, through that journey, you know, all the way from my very first, you know, white computer, Microsoft 95, <laughs> you know, from many years ago to um, now, that journey has kind of, you know, made sense um, because mm-hmm. I've not just been able to you know, study it, but then also pretty much build, you know, a business from start to scale, work with amazing people who are doing it across other countries as well. So that that that's the culmination of my journey to date. And of course, as you know, I'm currently um, studying for an MBA at the University of Oxford Side Business School, and I'm also the MD of the Oxford Seed Fund. Amazing. That's, that's such a great summary, Maria. And I love I love that you know, story of you, yourself, young Maria, starting off as very curious and, and passionate about computers and, and having a PC and that sort of almost symbolism broadly for, I guess, then your journey through an interest in technology because that's such a, a gateway to, to the tech world. Um, and I can see then the transition, of course, into consulting and business and your passion really there for entrepreneurship. So let's zero in a little bit more on those two incredible roles that you have because have had because I think listeners would love to hear about that in a little bit more detail. So you had this opportunity to take on the role of operations manager for Uber, yeah. um, which you touched on, and you know that was sounds like a broad role focused on analytics, designing incentives, driver engagement, and then you became the country manager for Uber yeah. in Nigeria, which is which is incredible. So obviously that was a time of high growth. Tell us a bit more about that role and what were your key challenges in that role and what what sort of learnings did you take from that experience? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, it's, it's interesting because going from consulting to startup world at Uber was actually not an easy transition. Um, there is this ethos within, you know, consulting that perfect is better than done. It's not said. But, you know, you have to get it right. You have to get the slide right. You have to get the data right. You have to get the alignment right. You have to get the color right. Like, Mm -hmm. there is this obsession with perfection um, in consulting. And that's the value prop of the thing. You're hiring a bunch of smart people to think about something in a holistic way um, and to give you an almost perfect solution or as as, as perfect as it can be. And going into Uber, which was a very high growth, you know, startup at the time, um the the opposite was true it was done is better than perfect like just get it done (laughs) like don't waste too much time creating artificial barriers and that transition was tough um but the the funny thing is it was such a a a muscle that once was built i i literally don't know any other thing like (laughs) right now there's such a it's almost like there's this bias to pretty much do um, and get things done and fail and learn, you know, while at, th- while at it and, and, you know, iterate and make it better that 
it's just so natural to who I am, you know, right now, and probably who I've always been. So I think one thing that I learned in my transition, you know, especially at Uber, is the truth is that 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 spirit of done um, is better than perfect. Uh, is is one that permeates any entrepreneurship endeavor. You're you're going to have to be okay with failing and failing forward and failing smart and mm. gathering the data and iterating and making sure that your failures are not for nothing and that you are getting using them to get insights that help you be better. So I learned that at Uber and that's an ethos that continues with me today. And then two, I guess like just that customer obsession, right? That was one of the things I loved about Uber before I joined. I was such <laughs> like a fan girl because um, at the time, Um, customer experience was one word that continuously, you know, was paraded along the halls. Being able to design um, a product, being able to to give a solution that had such strong product market fit that solved such a clear problem. Like, I don't even know how, you know, people transported pre-Uber. Like, it's like, it, it almost seems like a world away where you had to really really you know think about how to move from one place to another as opposed to just ordering it via your app so I really um learned about that customer obsession and really you know being at the you know being close to the pulse of your of your users um the other thing I, I learned was pretty much using data to, to inform strategies that that pretty much move the needle in the real world one of the strong you know thesis or, or would I say ethos with Uber was just pretty being data data centric like and the lack of data was also an opportunity to experiment to gather more data so but you needed to pretty much have the numbers to back it up um, and that forces a, a, a discipline with decision making that pretty much just makes it easy for you to justify and measure and iterate and build things that are as close to you know, fact as possible. And I and I'm mm. really and I'm really saying that the lack of data is okay. I've always believed that even in places where you can get data, the absence of data is, is something in itself. Um, and that just presents a unique opportunity to experiment and gather data that you can then use. So I really like that spirit um at Uber. That's the one thing that I've also like taken, you know, from that experience. And I think then moving into like my country, you know, manager role, I think that was a lot about managing like the this you know the drivers designing in partnerships that were impactful having regulatory conversations um those became you know more strategic and i think it's just really thinking about how a country plays in one the global like um product strategy like where you fit because um especially with products that are across countries even though there's a, an, an overarching like global strategy um, there will be country-specific strategies and pretty much how to tackle the nuances in local markets. Um, so I, I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about partnerships design, like just pretty much building something that does have mutual value for you and the partner, but then also creates um, significant and tangible value for the people that you, you who are your customers or who you serve. So that was a, a very, um, those points I think where, were lessons that I learned from my experience um, while at Uber. Fantastic. It's such a, it's 
such a diverse set of skills you have to pick up in that environment, given that um, you're covering so much ground. I really love those insights, Maria, on in terms of how the culture and how it was so different to what you'd experienced before and the lean startup method and iterating. And then, of course, being customer focused, being customer obsessed and then being data driven as well. And, you know, all three of those things have parallels or, or value in applying in, in investing spaces. And, you know, mentioned earlier that you are now you're now based here in the picturesque town of Oxford. You're the managing director of the Oxford Seed Fund, which is a student-led VC body. Um, so I think it'd be great to talk about that next because it seems that this is the, the direction you're moving your career towards next. And this is an incredible opportunity to, to be the managing director of this fund. So Maria, how's the process going so far? What are you enjoying about this experience and what are the factors that you look for in a potential investment? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, this question will, there's a bit of a backstory, even like from my transition from, you know, startup operations into venture capital. I think it's mostly because, because I, I really do think that on a fundamental level and empowering entrepreneurs to scale has meaningful impact both economically and, and, and socially. You are, mm. I think I think businesses are the, especially growing businesses, especially like small businesses that turn out to be medium businesses that turn out to be large businesses are the lifeblood of, of an economy, of any economy. They provide such importance, like stimulus to the economy and they also give people meaning. People, you know, go to work and they build things that are growing, that are impactful. Um, they build things that are innovative, they, they, they somehow get, you know, some kind of, you know, self-actualization or fulfillment from that experience. So on both, from both angles, I do believe that, you know, empowering entrepreneurs is something that is important to do. So, mm -hmm. I mean, after being an operator, the, the conversation, I was thinking about like, what do I want to do next? And I, and I think that's where the MBA is such an amazing experience because it allows you the space to think about what you want to do next. Venture capital came very quickly on that radar, primarily because I think the proximity to entrepreneurs, having worked at tech startups, and then also the transferability of skills. There are a lot of skills, you know, both from like an operator that you can pretty much move into the venture capital space. And then my finance knowledge, um, you know, kind of gives some, you know, insight there. But the end, the, the seed fund it was perfect because I think the seed fund is one of the very um, rare initiatives across business schools that I think the University of Oxford and the State Business School um, kind of has an has an as an edge, you know, over many other schools. It's student run, so the autonomy of the students are intact. We get to make the investment decisions. We get to pretty much empower Oxford affiliated startups building amazing things. And I think the process has been, you know, fantastic. I'm leading an amazing team. Um, this year and the team is so diverse across like different industries we have like product management we have fmcg industry experience we have like financial analysis we have like fashion we have software engineering we have like um, startup startup operations we have mna so it really brings that diverse view um, mm -hmm. to the team that i think it's really critical to the quality of decisions that we eventually make so the way I think 
um, we think about startups just in line with the philosophies of the Oxford City Fund. Like, obviously, it's a student, you know, fund with a focus on empowering, you know, um, Oxford affiliated founders, but then it's still also looking for commercial returns. So we look at things like how large the market is, um, what the, you know, potential TAN is, which, you know, has some indicators to how much the, you know, venture can return over time in terms of multiples on invested capital. We look at, um, we look at the team because we invest in very early stages because it's the Oxford Seed Fund. Um, some of these ventures don't have demonstrable traction yet. Some are still in very early stages. So one proxy to just pretty much understanding the quality of the idea would be the team and if they are the right fit to carrying it, you know, both from start to scale. It's also looking at the scalability, right? Like you could have a big market and a big idea, but then it's not scalable. Like, so we look at how easy it is to, to pretty much scale across different contexts, across different markets. Um, we also look at the revenue, like the, like the business model. So how will this make money and, you know, um, what does it need to work? And is that scale, scalable? And I know there's this concept of like product market fit. There's the concept of like model fit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but like really thinking about what does this idea look at, look like at, you know, the seed stage? What does it look like, you know, in later stages like A? What does it look like? can it generate a hundred million dollars in revenue? Like we begin to ask like, what does the evolution of this idea look like when it's you know, big enough to return the, the um, multiples that we, we expect? Um, and, and trying to do that from the early stages is, is sometimes a short shot in the dark, but um, I think asking these type of questions just help you know those that have the at least the highest chances. So that's that's generally how we kind of think about investing um, in in the seed stage at the seed fund. And I guess at the heart of it, I think I I just like to say even when I'm pitching the seed fund and inviting um, Oxford affiliated startups to apply, it's that do you have an idea? You're solving a big problem. You're the perfect team to solve this problem. You have like a a weird advantage. At, you know, to the to to understanding the problem deeper than anyone else. You have the experience, all the skill set, and 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 even the grit because building a business is hard. Um, and you know that commitment is necessary. Like if you have those things, like we want to have a conversation, whatever it is. And the C fund is also industry agnostic. It doesn't pretty much limit by industry. We want to hear any idea that's solving a big problem and has the the right team. Um, and we want to have a chat. So that's generally how I think about it. That's a really good summary. Thanks, Maria. And, you know, really loved your um, discussion there on why you have shifted into this this space as well and why it interests you in terms of empowering basically other um, uh, startups, having been in um, very fast growing and strong startups yourself. So, and I love the discussion around the team as well, because that's something very similar to uh, the small cap space, where a lot of listeners of this podcast are individual stock pickers on public equity markets across the world, particularly the small cap space. And in that space, you do often have the opportunity to reach out to management teams, unlike with big large cap companies, uh, to build that picture of the organization and, and get a, a clearer picture of the caliber of, of the leaders in the organization. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're doing that with the with the fund. And you mentioned, you know, so many things that are important, like grit, 
determination and just generally their passion for the idea. What sort of questions do you love asking when you have these meetings with with potential uh, investments of, of founders? Um, what are the sort of things that you like to probe them on? Yeah, I, I, this is an interesting question because there are several perspectives to this. Like the one thing that I believe is you cannot, especially in the early stages, the the founder and the the idea are hard to separate. Like the business is going to be a reflection of the founder at that stage. So I think knowing who that person is, what makes them tick, why that idea, like knowing the origin of why they chose that idea to to why did they why are they trying to solve this problem? I think understanding their why is important. Understanding who the founders are is important. That's a bit more nuanced before even trying to get into like the, the idea itself. Like just getting who they are and a sense of, of their person, I think is important, especially at that stage. And then this also spills over into, you know, their experience before, you know, the startup, like what exactly about their experience or their or their journey makes them well suited to, you know, being the right you know, people to pretty much try to tackle this problem. And there's also the question of why now? You could have an idea and the timing is wrong. And it's like, why are they trying to solve this now as opposed to you know, maybe months ago or years ago? Um, just trying to understand um, how they think about timing as well. Um, there's also elements on sometimes maybe the traction. With the seed fund, most people would have already worked on a pitch deck, which already preempts trying to answer many of the questions we would ask. So it's spillovers of questions not answered by the pitch deck or clarification areas we tend to dig into. So a regular pitch deck, you'd find things around like market size, a demonstration of what the problem actually is, how large that problem is, what the solution they're pro proposing is. And if there's any demonstrable traction, they show that as well. Some people talk about their advisors and a lot of people go into the team and why they are the right people to you know solve that problem um some people do some kind of analysis like some market competitive analysis to kind of show what the usp of, of their products or services in comparison to other players in the market um some other people talk about risk and like what you know the key risks for this business model are and how they intend to approach it or how they intend to mitigate it um and you know then depending on how much traction some others have gotten they pretty much put that in there if it's as early, you know, as maybe, you know, just having conversations with customers and customer insight on the problem to as, you know, far as like having an MVP that's already rolled out to a close group of people and what the traction and the numbers are saying. So we will typically like ask questions along these areas, um, you know, asking questions one level down just to try to understand. So for the team, Examples could be, um, so what specifically about your experience and maybe zeroing in on a particular experience and how that kind of links to the problem that they're trying to solve. Sometimes we ask like how you've kind of funded the business to date, mm -hmm. um, just to try to get the com your commitment or if there's some insight on previous, um, on previous investors that we you know, need to know about depending on how early you are on the spectrum of early. Um, what we're really looking for is a strong understanding of the problem, insight that is not available anywhere else. Um, so the, ideally the founder should have taken some time, not just like reading about the problem, but almost even leaving the problem and bringing insight that, you know, demonstrates 
a unique perspective um, that is not available externally or not easily, you know, analyzed just by looking at the superficial data. Um, other questions around um, depending on how far you are on the traction scale will be what your revenue numbers look like. If you're not revenue yet, like what the gross metrics look like. Um, other things could be um, customer insights that you found from the early stages, because we do believe that, especially in the early stages, you should be gathering data to validate hypothesis or even ask new ones. So are there any customer insights that have kind of come through? Obviously, logical questions like, you know, how much are you raising for this round? At what valuation? What instrument are you looking for? Do you have existing investors? What are their terms? Um, because depending on, I mean, like the valuation or, or the shareholder composition of the previous investors, that might kind of skew the decision many different ways. Um, I think another thing that's pretty important is some people, you know, tend to fundraise without maybe clarity on what the use of funds will be. So trying to understand what the use of funds um, for the investment you're seeking is for will be very important. And to whatever extent that can be as detailed as possible, just something to demonstrate that you didn't think of it this the other way around. Like you didn't just fundraise to try and um, for fundraising sake, you mm. kind of needed to do something. And then you're like, okay, now I need to get money and I need to get money because I need to do this because I need to achieve this. So understanding the use of funds most of the time because of the stage we're in, it's actually to pretty much develop the product um, to get a better product market fit um or or you know other if it's in the earlier stages maybe to validate an algorithm it, it's most of the time it's surrounded around like making sure like the product is is um refined enough for it to get it ready to scale so i think that's that's another um element for the seed fund specifically we only invest in us and uk incorporated entities for now so you know those screening criteria for a specific fund will be something to ask like where you incorporated for example or what's the oxford affiliation that's another example mm -hmm. so there are so the questions can vary across you know several like um themes across like market product team business model um traction um but in the seed stage to be honest we kind of focused more on the market opportunity and the team and then maybe you know some initial insights into traction that kind of shows that there is something there we can pull mm -hmm. amazing i love that maria that's a really good overview of a very broad set of questions um <laughs> and deep questions that you're asking so i can imagine yeah you that's useful for, for listeners who, who may be applying it's also useful for those who do this sort of due diligence generally as part of their own investment process. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you, Maria. And on, on the topic of individual investments, um, I'd love to turn to that topic now, Maria, and get your thoughts because you know the last 12 months since the onset of COVID, it's been an extremely wild ride for the public markets. Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen the rise of retail investors through the democratization of the markets, extraordinary levels of monetary policy through QE. You know, the market, in, in my view, is now at, at bubble-like valuations when measured by most sort of traditional metrics, like Buffett's favourite market cap to GDP ratio. Mm -hmm. What's your personal view, Maria, on uh, and what's your what's your strategy as as an investor, as a personal investor, 
in these moments? Are you personally keeping the risk on or are you <laughs> taking a, a defensive stance at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'm a risk taker, but I'm a calculated risk taker. I think the one thing to know is that 2020, 2021, like the impact of COVID on the economy is an anomaly. Mm -hmm. um, and like even from an investor perspective, there are businesses that will come out of this experience as is normal of any, you know, ex human experience that is impactful. It could be a pandemic, it could be a recession. Businesses tend to spring out um, from these difficult times, um, but many of them will fail because they might be solving for problems that are only temporary. Um, so really thinking about the sustainability of whatever it is beyond COVID into a post-COVID world, which is an emergent world. None of us really know what the world is going to be like. Yes, there's been vaccine, you know, rollouts. Um, we are now getting more clear directives on, you know, exact dates where lockdowns will be fully lifted. Mm -hmm. But we still don't know what that world is. We don't know if it's going to be a world where in the next three years, COVID is a thing of the past. Or in the next three years, we have other variants that make COVID uh, a, a fixture in our everyday life. Or maybe it's not just COVID, maybe it's other like diseases. Um, so I think that the fundamental thing to me is that this is an anomaly in the continuum and it has impacted what the emergent future looks like. And none of us can really predict that. There's so many different ways it could go. Um, and while there will be, obviously, for example, some industries more than others have benefited from the from COVID and it's forced digital acceleration, for example, um, industries like e-commerce, um, like fintech, like food delivery, like those have seen, you know, unprecedented spikes in growth. Mm -hmm. But it's also decimated certain industries. It's changing user behavior. COVID's making people either adopt a digital first life, you know, lifestyle. It's forcing the digitization of, of the world across industries. I mean, edtech, for example, even like productivity um, and human interaction. But it's also it also has like human elements where people, there's now a premium on like human connection because yeah. it's like we've been starved of that. But then yeah. the question is to what extent does was this a problem even pre-COVID with COVID like really exposing the vulnerabilities in the current system? And to what extent does that impact the potential pathways um, to which COVID impacts the future. Like, so it's almost like scenario planning. So the truth is like, no one knows what's gonna happen. We all have predictions. Um, there's public sentiment on what we think is gonna happen. But I think one thing COVID taught, taught us in this experience is that we really don't know. And we just have to take it like, as it comes and be emergent about our strategy and really think about it. Okay, this is what it looks like now. How do we pivot? Um, this is what it could look like and just being really nimble. So I think, I'm not sure how useful that is, but I think that on a high level, I, I, I do just hold on to certain like fundamentals, which is that this is an anomaly, this is not. So we expect the markets to behave, you know, <laughs> the same. Um, and then also the fact that this is still an evolving process, like nothing's fixed yet. Like, this could go in many different ways and just adjusting our strategy to that. But there, there are clear industries that have benefited from this and will likely continue to be. 
and there are other industries that have you know been negatively impacted by this and will likely continue to be and finally that this experience um even though it's not the normal um it, it's it's actually changed human behavior like it's gone on for long enough to assume that there are fundamental changes in how we interact with each other and the world that will stay um to some extent post-covid mm-hmm. yeah 100%. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head with a lot of those factors there, Marie, and um, I agree with you on, on the topic of uncertainty. And, you know, my, my other takeaway, I guess, from that is what you've said, it's, it's super important to, as you said, be nimble. And uh, in my view, I think to be active, you know, to this is a time where you need to, if you are managing your own portfolio or you're running a fund, I think it's a time where you need to consistently reassess the portfolio and the opportunities mm-hmm. that lie ahead of you because of exactly what you said, those structural shifts that are happening where there's a whole set of new winners and new, a set of new losers as well. So mm-hmm. it's a great answer. Thanks, Maria. So last question. We're getting towards the end of, mm-hmm. of the chat. Um, and the listeners, you know, this is something that I like to ask actually on, on every episode um, going forward. It's the fact that Everyone here listening to this um, has a desire to evolve as an investor, to improve their performance. You know, I really want this podcast to explore high-performing habits, just generally that can help listeners grow into the best version of themselves. So, Maria, you're a high performer. I'd love to hear your top two habits or routines or behaviours that you've adopted in your life to be more effective at, at your life's pursuits. Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, yeah, this is interesting. I, I, I don't know if I'm an expert on this, but um, I, I, there are a few things that have helped me. Um, I think the first one, um, very basic, I think just being curious and a hunger for knowledge, I think, and baking that into your routine. So for example, I'm always reading a book at any time. And I like to read books that I find interesting because I think interest is a signal um, that really helps, that, that just kind of points to what you have an innate desire to know about. And that can be helpful with a very busy life. Then two, I think I just bake in reading into my routine. So I'm either on Audible, and I, I read before bed, I read after bed. I love to read like, articles I'm just like a natural guzzler of information because I am super like curious so like just fanning that curiosity wherever you know it leads you and and I think many people overthink like oh my god like I'm supposed to read all this million things like read what you find interesting make it fun I feel like if you don't find it interesting yeah you could try to read it but like find stuff that you actually find interesting and I find that those have given me the highest ROI in terms of like return on knowledge because the I can then cross-pollinate that insight into maybe you know other you know verticals that probably weren't apparent in the initial like sense so just baking that into your everyday routine I found and then conversely I think writing um for me and I don't know if this is um adaptable for everyone I found writing to be as natural as dancing I don't there's no reason to do it you just do it because you want to and it comes naturally to you writing for me provides clarity of thought um it also even helps like 
retain some of the information on things that I've read and cross-pollinated in my mind. I think writing also really helps. I think even like for mental health, like it's catharsis. Like sometimes it's good to just like clear out your head um, and, and put it in paper and, and then look at it and see what you've kind of written. And sometimes there are insights in your mind that you kind of need to see to, <laughs> to for mm -hmm. it to kind of like just go full circle. I found that super helpful. And And writing could take different, you know, like, pivot it could be writing about your you know journaling personally your own personal experience like through the MBA I've tried to at least chronicle some of my experiences it's so fast-paced it's hard but it's been I've 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 been grateful for each time I've written even when I didn't feel like it like just reading through it because um the information is then you know in, in black and white and you can always go back to it and see how you thought that at the time um and then also even from like a, a a knowledge perspective like when you read about something you find interesting and it synthesizes in your mind like write about it um i think the process of writing does something creatively to help you solidify um potentially like divergent areas of knowledge that can converge in a unique way so i i quite like that um i'm a person of faith um, i'm christian so i i think from a both even like just like a mental health perspective i've just found it very easy to start off my day in a very quiet meditative contemplative state mm. um affirming my day um whatever you call it like meditation prayer that really centers me um and i found it really helpful for my mental health like just doing that as a routine like every day and then also like just making time out to do things you love i i think i think i saw some research that stress isn't actually like stress is not necessarily a bad thing until you think it is like if you are having fun if you're enjoying what you're doing um it tends to invigorate and then conversely i guess being deliberate about rest people mm. and, and i see it even like from a ruthless like logical perspective like we're not wired to continue we lose our productivity without rest so like the best thing you can do for your productivity sometimes even when you're stressed is just to take a nap and like just reset and recharge and that would be actually higher roi than like gosling energy drinks or trying to stay awake so mm. Like logically just, you know, resting um, also helps. I, I know these sound like super basic, but they've served me throughout my journey. And, and that's what I think I, I'd, I'd share. Love it. No, that's, that's fantastic, Maria. It's a really good set of suggestions. And I think I will try to incorporate many of them into my own <laughs> uh, daily routine. So thank you for sharing those. Um, so Maria, uh, yesterday was international women's day yeah. and you know we're celebrating strong and inspirational women and so it's been a pleasure to hear your story today um on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to have you involved and yeah. wish you all the best with the the steps ahead with the seed fund and and your future career so thank you so much maria thank you tom and if i could just add you know one final thought especially in the theme of of women's day i think like it is so um, important to spotlight these issues. It's great that we have a day to talk about it. But especially in the venture capital space, there is so much work to be done. It is mm. hilarious. Like, it, it's, 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 not, it's, it's hilarious in a negative. Like, sometimes the data actually scares me because 
it's not just the data. This data translates to lived experiences for people like me who mm-hmm. are looking, you know, to be, you know, leaders in that space. So, I mean, in the UK, for example, just 11% of fintech VC funding was going to UK-based female founders. Um, in the 10-year period between 2009 and 2019, only 0.24, that's less than 1%, of VC went to teams of black entrepreneurs in the UK with only one black female founder raising a series A funding in 10 years. Like I hear data like that and I'm just heartbroken and I'm mm-hmm. angry and I'm like, what can we do? And there's so many things that, you know, we all could do collectively in whatever respective places you find yourself. The lack of diversity translates to actual lived experiences for people. Um, I was in a competition recently And there were no female judges in that competition. I think I was the only black woman. That's the only one I saw. There were two black people, a guy and then me. And, and, you know, for the marginalized person, what that means in their lived reality is a physical confirmation that that space is not for them. And whether or not you can, like, out-rationalize it in your mind, subconsciously the data is telling you that. That's why diversity is so important. Um, it's important to be able to see people that look like you in a space. It's important to be able to have diverse opinions in a space. It's important to, the, device, the diversity is also so important because it affects the type of businesses that eventually come to be. And these have compounding effects over time and will affect the lived experiences of women like me. Like there are, I mean, I think there's just so much to do. And I think in the spirit of International Women's Day, if you're listening to this, like wherever you are, whatever sphere of influence, you know, you have in your space, I think it's important to do something because those collective efforts will compound. And I hope that in the near future, there is a world where diversity is the norm in every single sector, where a, a, a female founder is not is not an anomaly, where there is diversity on boards, not just necessarily from industry but then also like just not even just gender but like industry like origin like background like lived experiences across the board that diversity is so important so yeah I just wanted to spotlight that issue and just make this a call for action for anyone who might be listening to do whatever they can in their sphere of influence like your congregation is where you are you can do something wherever you are um sponsor coach mentor spotlight whatever you can do i'm sure like at the end of the day it will compound so yeah that's just one thing i wanted to add at the end of this wonderful really well said maria uh i cannot agree more and i'm so glad to have you explain in detail really that because um it's it's really important it's 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 uh, as you said as well in the spirit of international women's day so thank you so much maria Thank you, and I uh, really enjoyed having you on the call. Yeah, the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone. Bye. That was Maria Rotolu, a former management consultant turned venture builder with Uber and Branch.co in sub-Saharan Africa and the managing director of the Oxford Seed Fund. If you'd like to learn more about the Oxford Seed Fund, you can find a link to their website in the show notes. If you like this episode, feel free to hit subscribe on Spotify or Google Podcasts and stay up to date on future episodes. 
You can also subscribe to TEP Investments on LinkedIn or via the website for the quarterly newsletter.